The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. So today I want to talk about, uh, as I often do, you know, the connected events over the last month or so, and many quite uh, important events have happened to me during this last month and will continue in the coming weeks. But um, in particular, as those of you who have tuned in in the last week, um, my teacher, my very um, important teacher, um, Kantipalo, Lawrence Kantipalo Mills, passed away recently. And I will share uh, a few personal insights of what I learned from him and our time over many years, how we have met again and again and our lives have interwoven into one that has not only continued in a student-teacher relationship but also in a way of deep friendship and respect. I will also talk about um, a, a story about an old American nun friend who had studied in Japan in Koyasan in the Shingon sect. We've known each other for over 50, 30 years and uh, I spent time with her in Japan. But the, we, read, we met up again recently on Zoom and had a very interesting um, conversation which I would like to share in part with you. Also another very old friend who was instrumental in me coming here to Victoria to open a centre. She passed away a year ago and we uh, conducted a very small funeral. Um, there was limited capacity because it was during lockdown. But I would like to share this. Uh, it's her anniversary coming up in the next week and we were planning for it and again here we are in lockdown so let's see and we have uh, one of the BSV friends or members has come to stay here for a few months and the buku and uh, she's been a very valued um, contribution contributing person to the centre over this time. She uh, came with the idea to offer service uh, when she was not going to work as a kindergarten teacher. But she has um, also, you know, contributed in lots of uh, Dharma discussions and, um, yeah, I think she is enjoying her time here. So anyway, I'd like to share a little bit about um, you know, what she has been doing in the sense of supporting the Son Centre. And then in, amidst all of this, we had the AGM on Zoom recently, which always takes a lot of work. And we had um, a Kuan Yin finally arrived, the donation of a Vietnamese community uh, who had um, ordered and had made this beautiful marble Kuan Yin 
And we did get it to site. We even got part of it onto the plinth. The machinery wasn't um, strong enough or big enough. So the Quanyin sits on a path, the top part of it, and the the uh, the base, the foundation of the Quanyin is on the uh, on the plinth. But there is still uh, the difficulties of bringing all the parts together. The beautiful marble lanterns also are sitting in parts around um, the base. So we've had many people come, many ideas and thoughts how to put it together, but still this hasn't happened. So I want to share something of these stories in relationship to uh, a Zen story, which I usually offer um, some sort of Zen story and interweave it, you know, interweave the stories into the meaning behind this, um, this wonderful teaching. As you will see just on my, I don't know if it's your right or my left, but over my shoulder that I'm looking at, you'll see a calligraphy there, which normally sits at my front door. And in its everyday meaning, it uh, brings a smile to my face because it says every day is a good day. These words were um, uh, became a, a famous um, coin, you might say, or famous story from a Zen master by the name of Yunmen who lived in the 8th and 9th century. And he was founder of one of the, the Chinese Zen schools. And Yunmen, uh, when hearing his teacher talk about the 15th of the month, but what was more important was what happens after the 15th. And Yunmen said, as a student, he said, every day is a good day. Now we might take it from its uh, literal meaning, its, its ordinary meaning, which you know, every day in part, in many aspects, is a good day. The fact that we're breathing, we're here, we're alive. We're able to, you know, experience this world in some way is a good day. But actually it goes far deeper than this. The 15th in China, in Korea, in many parts of the world is, uh, is seen as the full moon day. So the 15th on the lunar calendar is usually the full moon day. And the full moon day, we would have um, a bath the day before, have a shower, uh, a bath or a shower, and shave our heads, and put on clean clothes. And then on the 15th, we would come to the hall and listen to Dhamma talk. And then we would continue back into our um our practice for the next two weeks. And every day, every every 15th day is a day that your mind is, is somewhat replenished. Your body is replenished with, with clean body and clean clothes. We have done the, the Mahayana, we have done the Bodhisattva precepts, and we've taken our monastic vows. And so the, the, the heart is also nourished and, and purified in a, in a monastic way. If we've had any defaults or any um, issues with our practice, then we confess those. 
there's a repentance ceremony. So this time is a very, very important time. And what it does is it allows the mind to be open and free to put our attention into the practice for the next two weeks. And I think this follows through in most of the Buddhist traditions. However, in this case, he is also talking about the 15th being the full moon, which is an analogy for an enlightened mind. And he is asking us to reflect on what an enlightened mind is, not from the point of what brought us to that understanding, or even the experience itself, because he is asking, but what happens after? What happens then? And that's really important. What do we do? You know, what do we do in the week, weeks after, the two weeks after listening to the Dharma talk? We go back into practice. We polish our skills, our mind. We learn to live, hopefully, in more harmony with one another. And we learn to look at our actions very carefully. What serves well, what enables and helps others. And we develop month by month the, uh, the virtues, you might say, the parami, the perfections. When I reflected on this, these stories interwove in different ways here. Well, one, of course, is uh, my friend who passed away, Chunsuk. He passed away a year ago. Let's start with her story first. And as I mentioned, she had a very uh, big influence in my coming back. I'd been here teaching just briefly to her in a community some 23 years, 24 years ago. And we saw um, a place, we went together to Dalesford, saw a place, and she thought this would make a wonderful center. And she sent a picture to me in Korea, but it arrived at my nun teacher's temple. And my nun teacher, opened the letter and said, what's this? And um, saw the picture and I said the story and the rest is pretty much history. She was supportive. My brother monks were supportive in Songkwangsa and the property was purchased. And Chunsuk had a small group of Koreans who would come every month and I would come up to the city and stay with her and her husband and teach that community up here. And over many years, um, various things happened in our lives and we went, didn't see very much of her. And then I heard she is passing away. So John, her husband and her daughter Grace and their friends came for a funeral last year during lockdown. So we just had 10 people, that was all that was allowed. But it was a very heartwarming, very important occasion. Daughter Grace is um, a good Buddhist. 
and uh, and enjoys to do a lot of retreats and yoga retreats and meditation retreats. And she decided to fulfill her mother's wishes and take the ashes back to India, uh, where they, she wanted them scattered in Bodh Gaya. And so Grace went back to India during the pandemic. And at a time, you know, India is um, suffering enormous, you know, problems with COVID. But however, this did not um, disturb Grace. She was quite fearless and quite determined. And she goes back and she offers the prayers and the many blessings to her mother and scatters the ashes in Buddha Gaya. Now, her mother had studied in India. She had a, a master's in, in uh, religious studies. And she had also practiced in India. And um, Grace then stayed on and she's traveled all over the country just studying, just doing prayers and studying. I mean, that is an extraordinary um, story for me to hear because not only is she incredibly brave to do that at this moment, but um, in her fearless way of living, Grace is uh, a very ardent um, seeker of the truth, and that is honouring her mother during this time. I did hear that one of Chunsuk's friends said that she had a dream that Chunsuk was being reborn in India or had been, you know, um, yes, had found an opportunity to be reborn in India which would make sense and would make sense why grace is still there. So I just wanted to start with that story because in light of, well, what happens after? After we've lived a life, you know, we've nourished our life in various ways, we've had a family or children or we've become monastic, then what happens? And of course, this is led, as the Buddha said, by our karma, by our intentions and actions and the, the retribution of those. But it is also what we have done that enables others. And particularly in this case, the daughter. I think they had a struggling relationship. But here the daughter is uh, doing an incredible filial act in a way in honouring her mother's life and continuing in the Buddha's path. And another thing that uh, I found interesting in this story and uh, where John, her husband, communicated that he wanted to bring more of the friends to come and celebrate her life for the one-year anniversary, which is on the 15th next Sunday. It falls right on the full moon. But here we are in lockdown. So we have to see what that happens, what happens with that. I want to go on to the next story, which is about my friend Echo. Echo, as I mentioned, was a nun in the Shingon sect. And Echo uh, has been communicating with me in recent times because 
she was um, needing, I think, to you know talk about many issues that she has found with her tradition. But we had a Zoom, and I knew she had moved into her little um, tiny house, her echo tiny house. And it wasn't finished, but it was a place where she had made it, so it was allergy-free. She has very serious allergies. And she also suffers from not only you know, the toxic allergy reactions that we might get, but from mold. So she found wherever she lived, she had this very chronic illness from mold. But her little um, kuti, you might call it, was very, very simple. And without any power, any power of its own, I think she had a lead that was coming from a nearby property. And without, you know, the bathroom finished, the toilet finished, she was living very, very simply. And when I had met Echo many years ago and stayed with her, she was living as a nun in a monastery. And I still recall um, visiting and staying in her teacher's temple, a very, very beautiful temple in the high mountains of Mount Khoisan, with all the mist and the, you know, the fog. It was wintertime because I remember having um, one of their, their baths. <laughs> they have a bath. And, um, but what struck me in this conversation was Ekai's sincerity in developing her parami, her perfections, and her noble character, as I touched on. She was deeply saddened by an extreme decline in her lineage since her teacher passed. And she entered a vow of hope that one day the order would be purified and flourish again. And she also, um, with the support of a Tibetan teacher, found comfort and joy and wisdom in abundance to support her in this way. Now, Ekai um, shared in this very long three-hour conversation not only the struggle she's had as a nun back in the West and a teacher. And she was a teacher before she went to Mount Goya with her husband. But the struggle to have um, maybe what you could say an impact on how she felt her work and her tradition could survive in, in America. And she's very sincere. And while we were talking, she had a, one of those, those pictures behind her. And it was a beautiful picture of mountains and fog or mist. But her head was sort of vanishing. 
back into this, this mist and disappearing at times. And I thought this is very interesting how, in a way, in her simplifying her life right down to the absolute essentials and holding a great vow that would take her from this life to another life to nurture and nourish her tradition and bring it back to the great tradition it was once. That somehow in that emptiness of self there, you might say, that complete connection with her environment, it not only nourishes and purifies, but it enables. And I could see how the echo, it reminded me of the founder of my traditions, great, um, he created what was called the Samadhi and Prashan community. And it reminded me of his efforts. He lived on a mountain in a small hut. And from there, he created a large community. First, just a number of like-minded practitioners. And it grew into a temple that became one of the most famous temples in Korea today. And that's where I lived. 20 years. And he says, if you have made a great vow to help others through your practice of samadhi and prajna and have developed the energy of the path, then let the gate of compassion unfold like the clouds. Let the waves roll in as a sea of the body action and bodhisattva's actions. Come forth and pay respect to the three jewels by not only pursuing the quietitude. So you pay respect by doing. And again, this reminded me of what after. Every day is a good day. I can only hope for my dear friend Echo that her that in a way how she's inspired me by her vow and her patience and to work on healing her body and heart, that every day from the deepest sense, from that enlightened mind sense, will carry her forth. And I'll come now to my wonderful teacher, Kanti Palo. I have just... Uh, a little offering at the back of me on the shrine. I received a vase that he loved and the little stoop of the little pagoda which he carried everywhere. I'm still getting a, a picture of his framed and I'll make a small shrine after the 49th day of ceremony, the ceremony day. But I want to share a little bit of our story keeping an eye on the time. <laughs> you know, I went to the, I went to um, the Wat with Kantipalo and Ilse Lederman, who became Ayakema. I had been with him for quite some months, actually. I had been traveling in northern New South Wales, and we met 
then I went to do the one-month retreat with him and Ilsa. And he wanted to move to this. He wanted to buy, purchase this property, and it was Ilsa's generosity that was going to allow that. But you have heard many of these stories, so I won't go into all of this in too much detail. But I did go to the ward. There were four of us, and myself, and Ilsa, myself, and another fellow. And uh, then there were a few other friends who would come on the weekends. But initially, there were just four or five of us living there. And it was a lot of work. But what inspired this, again, is that aspiration and that vow that Kantipala had the dream to make a, a forest monastery, actually. He, would, he wanted a forest monastery, I think. He also wanted to see a meditation center because she had studied in the Yubakin tradition um, with one of his successors. But his aspiration was to create a monastery. And we lived by eight precepts. It was 18 months or so that I was there, we lived by eight, eight precepts. Um, and he was very strict. He was humorous and joyous, but he was very strict in his monastic discipline. I think it frightened a lot of people off. Ilsa was also a very strong person, but she had lost her husband and she was going through quite a lot of deep grief and sadness at that time, but she was a wonderful teacher with a lot of loving kindness. But Lawrence, too, was, was um, had a lot of integrity and timing and patience. He had many qualities. As we know, he was a great writer. He authored many books and inspired many, many people. Many more people read his books than met him. But at some point, uh, after we did a lot of the initial building, we had Dharma talks, we had a daily schedule. We all worked very hard. At some point, I went to him with an inquiry about my practice. But it was a very specific inquiry about exactly where everything, the source of everything. Like mind, you know, what is this mind? And he was very quiet. I was sitting on a log, he was sitting on another log in the open near the, near the house. He was quiet and deeply listening. And he said to me, your practice is the practice of an art and non-self. You have to go deeply into that place to find the source of mind. And that, I think, although I had done some Zen, I think this was the seed that took me on to become a nun. Though I had a dream I'd be a nun, but I, this all happened before that. It, there was it, something was seeded there. 
and a koan arose out of that. Not so much the who am I koan, but the this koan. This mind, you know. So my whole life, I've owed gratitude, deep, deep gratitude for that one conversation. I don't recall. I mean, we had no doubt in retreats and things, we would have had interviews. And I used to take him and Ilsa all over the country to teach. As a driver, I was a cook often. He taught me how to, he taught me about plants and gardens because a monk couldn't dig, you know, so I, I often did a lot of work along with the building and things, but there was something about his creativity. We made a beautiful stupa. The first sala we built was very beautiful too. And the second one, of course, was a masterpiece, but the little one made out of um, cut timbers, which I cut, it was very, very... Uh, very, very lovely little sala, very cold. <laughs> but everything he, he, he said would be, you know, it would be about Dharma. It wasn't just, you know, chit-chat. I remember once I was working in the, the kitchen making a lunch with someone, and we were having a little conversation. It was very, probably very light because we didn't all converse that much. And he said, stop talking in a very stern way as he went through to the back. And I went, oh, you're talking about cooking. But he was very strict like that. And we, we lived like a monastic. I don't know Lawrence so much so well as a layman in, the, in those early days early years, but as Kanti Palo, uh, yes, I did get to um, become a nun because of, because of him. And also, he, he inspired me to go to Korea, as I mentioned in my few words that I spoke at his funeral. He was one who talked about Korean nuns being um, very good. And he also spoke about um, a friend of his who was a monk at a temple. So all these little conversations that always pointed in a way that would take me on to Korea and on to practice with the nuns and the monks. Then... There were times that our life interwove back and forth. I came back to Korea once and uh, to help with the first temple, and there was an opportunity to try and save a library. And uh, Kantipalo had created a constitution because the request was, if you create a sangha, then the Dr. Tiao, who owned the library, would give it to the, the sangha. It didn't happen, but we did create a little Sangha association, the first. And it was the first time that people got to share a meal together in another tradition, talk about their traditions, get to know one another. And friendships grew from there. 
and after. The Sangha Association didn't survive. I mean, I was the secretary and I went back to Korea and it didn't survive, but another library did with, with Kantipala and myself and Graham Lyle, we decided to try and make another library and we did. And I sent many books back from, I was in America for a short time, a few months, and sent many books back from there, boxes and boxes of them. And then Graham was collecting. Antipaolo gave some from his library at Wapodadama. And we gathered a small library in Luishan, where Graham had found a place. And there, that library grew into what is now the Library of New South Wales, the Buddhist Library of New South Wales. Again, this was probably he did many things like this. You know, it was his actions. So after he had studied in Thailand, studied in India with Sangharishita, and came to Australia in you know, hippie days of developing Nimbin up in northern New South Wales, then he flowered into this person who who had many talents and many people came to the what over the 15 years or so he was there. Many, many. Not hundreds, but thousands would have come. He did many retreats in those earlier years, traveled the country, traveled even overseas, I'm sure. But my life went in a different way. And we then met again after he had disrobed and became Lawrence, just briefly over an issue related to the what and the future of the what. And we met several times in discussion. But then one day I get on my internet a little message, do you know this man, Lawrence Mills, and a photo of him. And he had found his way down to Melbourne. And at this stage, we heard he had dementia. I think he may have been visited one of the Thai monasteries at that time. And later, he went to Kwang Min. For a short time, he, he retook some vows, probably not big vows, but he retook some vows. And Venerable Fuktan was trying to help him. But there was something there that was always Kantipala, even as Lawrence. And I'd heard many then by this stage, I'd heard much more about his story and how he had built a centre in Queensland. So short, you know, to keep it brief here, then many of us who had known him, a number of us who had known him over the years came out to help and support and as I think many of you have heard the story, he did end up in a home. I found this home called Callista in Calindra. Sorry, um, a home in Calindra. And there was a room with, with a Dharma picture, which was clearly his room. And we, we, you know, I couldn't come as much as Gary and Michael but there was a small team of us who would make some of the ma major decisions around his well-being. 
But as he slowly lost his language, it took time. He still had language. And I have many very memorable times of going out. He came and stayed here for a couple of weeks, but with the language came, you know, he'd wander and get lost. But I do remember once when we found him, he was lost and he'd been in a park and we found him and he had to go back um, to a temporary home. And he said to me, this is what I am now. Just with a big nothing more, this is what I am. And so Lawrence's capacity, again, in reflection, to this analogy, this koan, you know, what next? He had one word, shine, towards the end. And in those days before he passed, I was able to be there at the house, at the, at the, um, the home, in his room with Gary and, and Lawrence's former wife, Danica, and her husband. And we were praying and many people were coming and going. So for a number of days I was there. And one day I was there with him on my own. And he opened his eyes and he just looked right at me. And it was that look of presence that my heart sort of opened right up and tears came to my eyes. And I did a forgiveness ceremony for both of us. Lawrence, myself. Like anything that I may have done in this life in the past, please forgive me. And his eyes welled up too. And I thought, Lawrence knows what I'm talking about in this moment. He knows. And for a couple of days there, I had a feeling he was very, very lucid, very clear. And he worked very hard on dying. It was not easy for Lawrence. He was very present. So I think, when I think of him, he was always giving. I think that's what people notice. But he was giving from this presence. He was always present. Right there, as everything went and he would join in the chanting on some level or join in the presence of company, he was present. That was his action to the very end. And we all experienced it even more so in that goodbyes, in that time of really relinquishing. He was present. Now I want to talk about in the last, where are we? In the last um, minutes we have, I want to talk about two things. One is um, the book who has come, you know, to have somebody come 
and want to, you know, offer anything, you know, their, their generous time, their skills, just their presence, their ability to want to um, share their gifts. And in the case of um, Nabukov, she's has been a nun. She has uh, managed um, Vipassana centers, but she is also a wonderful <laughs> organizer and, and cleans everything, you know, beautifully. So, in her time here, she has taken the initiative to you know, clean out cupboards, and spaces that haven't been looked at for a long time. And, Help me let go of things that we don't need. And this always frees up, you know. When anyone comes and makes an offering, whatever that is, it frees up a place that uh, you feel, again, very present. You feel very, it's, it makes that place alive. And so uh, we worked inside and outside. And she was here the day the Kuan Yin came. And we've had, you know, various visitors in her time. We had some Thai monks. And we had other visitors. And Venerable Hoktan came to help with the Kuan Yin. And it's been, you know, very important to have her here. I was just looking for the little, um, I have a little poem, something I wanted to share with her. Because, you know, often we, we meet somebody, it's for a short time. You know, she was coming for a few months. If the opportunity changed and uh, her, her life would allow it, and she may consider to stay longer. But it's not so easy, you know. She moved into a very rustic little cottage. She's made it, no doubt, as pleasant as she could. We had to do some fixing up of it. But there is always, uh, wherever we go, if we put our heart into that place, it really works for us. But sometimes other conditions come in the way. And I think for... Uh, Nabuku has another job off the mountain. That is not easy. Her family and friends are somewhere else. So unless, you know, you have that capacity to really want to be in a place where there's an un or a monk or very committed to, to the Dhamma and to living this way, then it's not, not ever so easy. But... I think with her, there's, uh, there was a wonderful capacity to enjoy what she's doing. So that is great. And she did help. She helped me with internet. And she has helped with, uh, with tidying up the land a little bit. So that will be what I remember when she's moved on when she finds where it would be more beneficial for her to stay. 
but it's not easy when you know you have um, been a renunciate and come back into the world, come back into such a place. But I'm very grateful for reflecting on that every day is a good day, again from that deeper perspective. It's important that we recall our deepest insights and spiritual experience. And from there, bringing that to mind, you know, then observe how we act. Every day if we meditate, go back into that stillness, back into that heart-mind, back into that capacity to feel awake, clear, lucid, and fresh. And from there, see how our actions evolve. And it is from there that we make very clear um, decisions. So with the gift of the Kuan Yin, the many hands that have made it, many hands that have brought it to us, and it's sitting there waiting to sit on its beautiful lotus shrine, throne, you might say, or shrine. It's reminded me that whatever it is we do is not easy. We can think, oh, wonderful, we get this gift. Somebody comes and stays, how wonderful. But it's never easy. It is only easy for the mind that's awake. And this gift has attracted already many people, <laughs> even though it's not a it's not uh, all put together. But a number of those people, a dozen of those people, have come to see. Well, how can we put it together? just in its location at this time of the year where it's so wet, there's so much rain, we are um, we are left wondering, you know, how to put it together. Even big machines, because the ground is so wet that the bigger machines, um, you know, they just tend to, even with the paths, we've got paths, we've got... Um, gardens that are developing on around the paths. The paths are a little bit narrow. Off the paths, the ground is very soft. So we may have to wait even until the ground is dry. But I've had about 10 different people come with ideas of how we can, we can put it together. And hopefully that will happen soon. So in all of these situations, in this month, plus others, you know, there's always somebody calling or somebody who reminds me of some deeper part of my life and my practice. All of these stories have connections that either we're old friends, old connections, teacher, student, um, you know, nun relationships or monk relationships, you know, your 
your dharma friends, your sisters and brothers, they are you know the people who, though you know her great aspiration and vow, which was similar to Lawrence's Kantipalo's great aspirations and vows, to create places for practice that are good places that hold the virtues and the, the teachings of the Buddha and the, the, the vows of the monastic. Because that is what will continue. That is the after. Who comes will be inspired by that. Who takes on robes will be inspired by that. Who is a good Lapers, virtuous lapers, will be inspired by that. And then when we pass on, others, as in the case of Lawrence, you know, 500 people listening to his service online, watching his service online. We always have technical issues, those things happen. Yes. And I'm sure thousands were watching Archam Brahm online. And by the way, happy birthday for yesterday, Ajahn. I did send a little message in car. But these are because something of that person was deeply rooted in the Buddhist teachings, in the practice, in sustaining the moral virtues. All of these lives have reminded me of what comes from someone who's dedicated. And even if outer forms, due to health, due to lack of nourishment in some way, inability to teach, or being in the wrong environments, whatever it is, Still, whatever you have cultivated and awoken to, understood deeply in yourself, not just what you've read, but what you have nourished your heart with, that will continue to flower. Lawrence's books will be continued to be published and read by people for generations to come. Straightforward, true dumb. So I think at this stage I will pass it back to Langdon and see if there's anyone who may like to ask a question. Thank you very much, Sunim, for your very deeply reflective talk and memories. Uh, we do have one talk, uh, one question. Just before, I'd like to apologise for the very brief um, interruption to the talk that we experienced a few minutes ago, just a, as Sunim said, we're always experiencing some little technical issues here and there, but I don't think we must, lost very much of the talk at all. Um, so the, first, the main question at the moment, uh, I'll just go back as it's been over a few different sections here. So the question is, if there is no such thing as me, 
then what goes from one life to another? And uh, the person asking that is just clarified, I'm not in doubt of reincarnation. I'm just wondering which components of what one identified as me carry through. Do any of the personality aspects, uh, such as um, depression or temperament or attitude, does any of that get passed on to the next life? It's a very big question. And it's uh, a question deeply rooted into, you know, the causes and effects, the, the, the teachings of cause and effect. The stain, it depends on the, the stain of karma. If, uh, you know, it's a little bit like water that runs down the same channel in earth, it, it creates a groove. And if that channel of behavior is very um, persistent, you might say then that character can um, continue. But it's not quite in, you know, a me sense, let's say. Me sense, the ego sense, tends to grow out of the, um, the forms of, of self-identification in, in, from, from birth. I mean, there would be a, a, an identification in the womb and there is streams of identification on some levels. You know, say you're monastic in one life because of many tendencies in that life to, to um, and habits and, uh, and mental states and formations. There's a tendency to gravitate towards that in a future life. But it's never uh, so simple. Karma is one of the most, cause and effect is one of the most difficult things to be able to clarify. But what is me is just an illusory, um, uh, false identification of um, a self-value or a self-egoistic um, value, um, an idea of self in every situation. So the me, if you, you meditate, you start to see that that's, that's not there. You know, if you meditate on any level, it doesn't appear in the same way as you think. You know, that comes out of more an attach, attachment or aversion to any situation. If we have something that we identify as a need or a self in it, then that, you know, can, can grow um, with more desire or more rejection, however it goes. But in the sense of the karmic affiliation, uh, self always, the ego always needs something, you know, to attach itself to. And in rebirth, where there is, um, you know, all various states that happen after passing, as suggested in, in texts and by the Buddha, you know, various realms that we may attach to, states of mind that we may attach to. Uh, be pleasant or unpleasant, um, then karma can continue in those places. You know, that we in the heavenly realm, you continue to, you know, indulge. So it can be very pleasurable, so you want to have more of it. And in an unpleasant realm, you know, you want to get out of it. And these are just every day. So going back to every day is a good day, is how do we actually really 
see it like that? How do we really find that understanding? On the superficial level, the ordinary level, just like the skin of the body, underneath, there, it, there, it exposes something different. But if we just attach to the surface, to the, to the outer forms, you know, then the mind will jump from this to this to this. It doesn't stop. When we start to go deeper, then it becomes stiller. And then the self doesn't have anything to hold on to. The deeper you go, the stiller you go, then that self is, is diminished greatly. But there is still personality. doesn't mean that enlightened people don't have personality. They still do. Because that, again, is also based on their habits and the way they have their, their environments, their family structures when they're very young, when they're children, their languages, cultural imbuing. All of those things there become part of personality, who we are. There's similar things in me as to my siblings. They're not monastic, they're not Buddhist, but we have some similar characteristics. But how we work with those, how fluid we are with those things, that's, that can differ greatly. How much space we have in our life, how much freedom we have in our minds to do the things that are really meaningful for us, that will differ. Thank you very much, Sunim. The next question is, uh, as a monastic, doubt may arise. How does one counter this? Doubt is, doubt is uh, twofold. <laughs> one is sceptical doubt, which is where the mind uh, is not stable. The mind is always um, a little fragmented, confused. And so things that seem good or true or right, you know, we, we, we have a view, another view that will counteract that experience. And with counteracting those experiences, the mind gathers doubt. It's called, the Buddha called it skeptical doubt. It is one of the hindrances. But there is a, deeper doubt. And in my culture, my tradition of Buddhism, we actually cultivate it. And all those other lesser doubts somehow collapse into it. It becomes a very <clears throat> deep inquiry of not knowing. Because actually in doubt, it's we're, we're entering, a, entering a state of not knowing. We're not sure. And when we're not sure, we tend to um, posit our view one way or another at some point. But if we somehow stay in that place of not, say, taking a position, the mind opens actually, it has capacity to, to deepen and open. And it also has a capacity to collapse into itself. And so what we call with a doubt is uh, something that will actually help you to step off the precipice of attachments or the precipice of knowing, you know, we can have this constant mind that thinks it knows and you're stuck there too. 
even for academics, they can they can get very confident about their knowing until something happens and then they don't know anymore. They go deeper in their meditation and they don't know. So meditation is the tool to take you beyond just the skeptical doubt, the everyday unsureness and lack of confidence, the inability to make decision. It can take you to a place where that inquiry grows, that who am I grows in a way that becomes what we call the great doubt. The great doubt, you have to have great faith, <laughs> great patience, and great strength, so to speak, you know, to be able to, to work through it. And uh, as a monastic, they are the qualities, we, they are the practices that we have to develop, you know, to develop our great faith what it is we don't know, what the Buddha understood, but we don't yet know. And great faith that this path of monastic can help lead us to the, the, the awakened mind, to the truth. And then also, strength. We need an enduring strength deal with whatever arises in a way that every day is a good day <laughs> at least <laughs> if it's it, if we don't see it that way we can actually see the seed of that and uh, and of course it's nourished by going back to the, the beginning of that story it's nourished by a mind that as for a monastic that can cleanse itself every month that can um, purify its mind, go back to that place where we've had a deep experience, a deep aspiration, an inspiration, you know, a deep teaching. Go back to the Dhamma. And from there, start again. From there, see what's next as much as we can. Don't worry too much about your doubts. You can look at them and see, oh, okay. Not knowing. Throwing the not knowing is okay. The self doesn't have a place in that non-knowing. Mm. Thank you very much, Sunim. And the last question is um, directly to you. How do you, um, Sunim, live the phrase, every day is a good day, um, in, in your life, the, the questioner has acknowledged that you have sort of uh, talked about this and, um, and given some ideas about this, but uh, I just would like to ask that question directly just in case there's something that they've missed or, you know, if you'd like to just um, clarify yeah. how that is, is embodied in your life. Thank you. Well, first, I have that phrase right at my front door as I walk in and out. <laughs> and it sits behind Bodhidharma. So Bodhidharma being the founder of, of Zen in, in China, in India who went to China and sat supposedly against a wall for nine years, you know. I'm reminded when I see these two things, that the core of this lesson is uh, a deep... Um, understanding of, you know, the, 
of the mind, a deep uh, um, uh, it's, a, it's a mixture of, I was going to say relinquishing mind, but it's a deep um, a realization of mind. And I mean, for me, I have many years of teaching, both scholastical and meditative in Korea. We meditated um, over six months every year. And they were long hours, between 8 and 14 hours a day, or 16 even at times. But I still continue my meditation practice every morning, sometimes in the day when I can and in the evenings, sit into the evenings. And I also study. So I'm always bringing myself back to what's important in cultivating a pure mind, in cultivating a practice, in cultivating and honoring this life. I mean, I'm also very active. So when I'm asked if I could teach or I'm asked if I can do something, I do what I can do. And I've always felt since I've been back in Australia that engagement is very important. And um, so all of these things, you know, whether I'm doing work for the environment or doing work for the Dharma or doing interfaith or sitting on my cushion, without every day is a good day, heart, you know, you get exhausted. You know, life, life can bear down on you. Depression can set in. Because lockdown for many people, and I didn't touch on it, you know, I was going to, but I didn't. Lockdown for many people is, well, here we go again. You know, um, I think people have got over just wearing pajamas, but I saw kids out and about who had pajamas on. And it is... Um, it's not so useful to not see how we can live positively or work towards how we can live positively every day in every situation because that's all we have. When Yun Men said, um, I'm not interested in how you become enlightened. I'm not interested in necessarily what you do, what your practices are. But every month, whatever you have done, purify that, cleanse it, acknowledge it, awake to it, and move on. And we have to find ways to do that every day. Every day. Lighten our heart in a new way every day. And I do it through being engaged. Whether I'm engaged in mundane things, I live in a hermitage mostly on my own. Visitors come. A workman comes once a week. You know, students come. But I have to be here and do it. I mean, I keep it tidy. I keep it reasonably clean. I work at the gardens. Others contribute a little bit where they can. So having Nabuku here has been great. But we have to find a way that the core, you know, that, that day, that character at the top, 
is actually also the character for the sun. You know, the sun comes out in the day. If we talk about every, it's every situation, everything. So how is every situation, everything meaningful, purposeful? So that's why, you know, I have actually in my little hall that I'm sitting in here is my library now. It used to be the hall, but it's library. We brought the library down from upstairs and we have a hall. We have a, a Buddha hall now, meditation hall. So, you know, the property has developed. So there are these everyday things I have to do to honor them, utilize them. It doesn't matter if you have an apartment, how do you utilize it? How do you respect it? How do you share gratitude? And actually this colony is about gratitude. How do you take a step forward? I've talked about that, you know, in other talks. You're running away from the tiger. You jump off a cliff. But how do you take a step forward? And how do you take a step backwards to reflect? There's always, there was a factor that I didn't mention, which is timeliness. There is a time. So I have a sort of a scheduled time. At least for them, you know, I have my meal, I wash my dishes. So it doesn't occupy my space. I have a conversation with someone when they're gone, it's finished. If there's something to do about it, I do it. So I keep things in some sort of timely measure. I don't always do it perfectly. Sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. But again, that was a reminder, and I probably didn't finish Kuan Yin on this point. It may not be the time. You make a mistake, a ton of marble falls to the ground and breaks. So when there is a risk involved, we step back and we wait until it's the right time. And I recognize to do that over and over again. It took seven years to make the haul because I stepped back and did other things were more important and Maybe I didn't have the finance. Maybe I didn't have the expertise to do whatever. So when you wait, but you never lose that vow or intention that I mentioned from Echo. You never lose that mind that is trying to hold it all, respect it all. That's the everyday part of it. Every day. As many things every day. And the sun above it, you have the sun. The sun removes the shadows, removes the doubt, removes the confusion. And that's the awakened mind. Then all is good. The unpleasant, the smelly, the dirty, the... <laughs> What what Grace's experience in India, the everything of India, can you imagine? At a time of COVID, and she's going from one part of the country to another. Obviously, really, you know, enjoying it. Her every days would be good every day. 
hopefully. <laughs> the point is not so much how chikwang's every day is good as how you make your own. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Sunim. And uh, that's all the questions we've had today. So we've just finished right on time. So mm. talking of timeliness, that was very well handled by everyone as well. And we hope that you, Sunim, and everyone who's tuned in is has a good day today as every day. Thank you. Thank you, Langdon. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Yes. Goodbye. All the very best. And yes, every day, may it be well and good for you. Take care.